0: Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what is going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha barber I'm a journalist. And today, Keith, we are discussing a recent article written by a man named John Pfeffer. Now, I've got to say, it was a pretty grim read. (laughs) Uh, The article analysing the effects of Putin's Russia on the world's hopes of tackling climate change uh, also fears the global reign of the West could be over. Keith, what are your first thoughts on Pfeffer's perspective that the Western world could be in the midst of a so-called Last Supper?
1: Yep. So John Pfeffer works uh, in Philadelphia at a think tank over there, and this article is called China Will Decide the Outcome of Russia Versus the West. And the subtitle is, Is Putin the Face of the Future or the Final Gasp of the Past? Ominous. <laughs> Ominous, <Very>. absolutely. <laughs> so, um the argument from John Pfeffer is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a major turning point in world history. And what he's looking at are some of the implications of the, the Russian attempt to absorb Ukraine into what is called Rusky Mir, which is the Russian world, whereas many in Ukraine want to join the Western world, European Union, etc. As you've seen, the European Union has decided to fast track the application from Ukraine, which is ironic because there are parts of the Balkans that have been in that queue for years uh, and are very annoyed that um, Ukraine jumps the queue and goes right to the head of the, of the queue. So you've got really this de- debate over the future of Ukraine, but then what he's done is to say, well, look, there's also a whole debate about the future of the world in a number of contexts. So one of the contexts that I found fascinating was the, Implication for climate change, you know, we're we're in this uh, stage at the moment where, under the Paris Agreement, we're supposed to be cutting back on the consumption of um, coal, etc. And yet, Putin, as the leader of Russia, is now one of the major providers of energy to the global market. And um, as he says in the article, Russia is the world's largest exporter of natural gas the second largest oil producer, and the third largest coal exporter. By the way, Australia is number one right. as a coal exporter. There you go. I didn't <laughs> uh, know that. A good quality coal as well. Mm. So Putin is therefore the sort of carbon king. So we've got, on the one hand, the environmentalists saying we've got to cut back on all this emission. And at the same time, now, thanks to the invasion of Ukraine, we've got a lot of people saying, we, well, we've got to get more energy from somewhere we're not making enough progress with um, wind power and solar power etc and so the the preference then is to slide back into the old ways of coal and, and as he points out in the article india and china although they're both interested in alternative power both of them are going back into the use of coal so one of the impacts of the russian invasion of ukraine it's the damage that's going to be doing to the environment and the whole campaign for trying to reduce the climate emergency.
0: There was a term used in the article, petropolitics. Uh, could you explain to us what that is and whether we're seeing that with Putin in this?
1: Yes, yeah, so petropolitics was the term first used, I think, probably in 1973 when the Arab oil exporters plus Iran decided to turn on the West. So let's say at the beginning of the 20th century, countries like Britain decided to change their economy. So Britain had a, a huge fleet of naval ships, for example, and they're all powered by coal because Britain was a major coal producer. Winston Churchill decided to move away from coal, which required you to have three shifts of people doing nothing except shoveling coal It's an appalling way of trying to earn a living in the the Royal Navy. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. So
1: he then said, all right, we'll now have oil-powered ships, him and the First Sea Lord, Jackie Fisher. And the problem, of course, is that Britain has coal at home but no oil, although later on they found North Sea oil. But that was only because of the brilliant advances in technology and you could actually get down to those deeper depths. In fact, some of the oil companies at the moment are actually looking at going down for as deep as five miles. Which is the equivalent of putting a tunnel inside Mount Everest and going up the inside of Mount Everest.
0: <laughs> uh, <it's>, how <laughs> do is, they figure uh, out how to do it? It's,
1: exactly. It's mind blowing, yeah. mind blowing. So, uh, back at, uh, just over 100 years ago, the British decided that they needed to find oil, uh, which they've located in Iran, Persia. And so they then uh, developed their own company that basically ran Iran when it came to the oil industry. And you had others who were developing it. The Americans, of course, were already had a head start because they had a lot of oil, uh, petrol in their own country. And so at that point, people started to talk about the importance of, of oil for energy purposes. In 1945, in one of the final acts of President Roosevelt, he had a, a secret meeting with the leader of Saudi Arabia in the Suez Canal. So he had just been in Europe. Uh, winding up some of the negotiations for the end of World War II. And he then went south to the Suez Canal, had this secret meeting with their leader of Saudi Arabia. So before this time, America was not a player in the Middle East. That was uh, previously controlled by the Ottomans, the Turks, and then taken over by the British and the French. But the Americans in 1945 realised that they could actually fill the vacuum, which was going to be created by the exit of the British and the French. The writing was on the war. Those two countries had bankrupted themselves in the war. So the Americans figured this is our opportunity. So Roosevelt negotiated a deal between Saudi Arabia, which was a major oil producer, and the United States. The Americans would protect Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia would supply oil to the international market at a reduced price. And that agreement held up from 1945 until 1973. In 1973, a war took place between Israel and some of its Arab neighbours, and the Arab oil-exporting countries decided to increase the price of oil, to use oil as a weapon. And suddenly then we're talking about petro-politics. Previously, petrol was just seen as an economic matter. Now it became a matter of high politics. And in a sense, petrol has continued to be on the radar screen, since 1973 in a way that it probably wasn't quite so much before 1973. And now, of course, we see the debate over Putin and oil. So Putin supplies natural gas to um, Western Europe through uh, a pipeline, uh, Nord Stream 1. They've just recently completed Nord Stream 2, which is a parallel pipeline, and that is not going to be implemented. The Europeans are not going to use that and they're going to try to find ways of, of using less energy from Russia. But the Germans are very weak on this issue because the Germans got rid of nuclear power after the Fukushima tragedy, and they also decided to phase out coal. So they've really made themselves vulnerable to the Russians. And Putin obviously figured, look, I can get away with invading Ukraine, partly because the Germans are just so focused on having to buy our energy. They're not going to retaliate against us. So the Germans made themselves vulnerable uh, to Russian pressure.
0: And we're seeing recently in the scope of the war in Ukraine and just generally countries when the, the aim is to be moving to reducing our emissions or actually increasing it, what are some of the countries that are having to respond this way, either from the war in Ukraine or other reasons within the country? Well,
1: um, I think we all are, really, in one way or another. Part of the tragedy of the invasion is also the shortage of food going on to the international market. So we, we have an energy crisis now and we have a food crisis, as the UN Secretary General has warned. We're going to end up with a, a global famine, particularly in Africa. Um, the Africans were heavily reliant upon Russia and Ukraine. They were two major suppliers to the international market. Before the revolution in Russia, Russia was the biggest grain exporter. Then you get the revolution. The communists come to power. They get rid of private ownership of farms. They nationalise farming, reduce the production of the farms. And then in recent years, the Russians have got back to being number one in terms of food exporters because they've obviously allowed people to own their own farms again. It's that private ownership which has made the difference. So Russia is back being productive, but suddenly Putin has wrecked his own farming industry um, because, I have to be clear on this, there are international sanctions against Putin and Russia, but they do not cover food. Mm -hmm. So um, you're not supposed to be buying Russian gold, but you are allowed to buy Russian food. Putin is saying, well, you've imposed sanctions on us, we will decide that we're going to stop exporting food. And that's what's causing this concern about famine.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter, and this week we're considering an article written by a man named John Pfeffer in which he questions whether what's happening in the world right now is is a last supper for humanity. Can we tackle climate change in the scope of war? Another interesting point, Keith, that uh, Mr. Pfeffer brought up in this article was questioning whether the West... Upward trajectory has stopped now. If we're seeing, mm. you know, the flow-on effects, could you talk through what he's kind of said in the article and whether you agree?
1: Yeah, it's very depressing, as you say. <laughs> <laughs> if you go, if you go back to the late nineteen eighties, there was a bestseller uh, written by Francis Fukuyama. He, um, at that time, was in the State Department. He later left the State Department and has created himself as a an independent scholar. He wrote a book called The End of History. He argued that. In Hegelian terms, as a German philosopher, so the argument is that the history is constantly evolving. And the argument from Francis Fukuyama was that we have now reached the high point of world's evolution. There will still continue to be problems in the world, but we now know that democracy and capitalism are the highest forms of human civilization. We've hit it. We've hit it. So it's (laughs) the end of history now. Right. Right. So other issues might come along, but, you know, we've got the winning formula. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so this was at a time when the Cold War was winding down, the Soviet Union was collapsing and was, in fact, going to disappear in the next uh, year or so. It was seen as a, a brilliant piece of prediction and it was very reaffirming for Western countries to think, yeah, we're the ones who've developed this formula. The rest of the world will have to catch up with us. And then you get this um, expansion of democracy around the world, and there was this feeling in the early 1990s that um, the world was heading into this much better period and that we're going to head this period of peace and plenty. Look, I just... One of those who were suckered in by this, mm. I've got to admit, you know, I was one of those who publicised McDonald's Golden Archie's Theory of World Peace, for example. Right. Which which said that no two countries that sell McDonald's go to war against each other. Which? Because when you sign on to McDonald's, you're signing on to free trade, which then sort of amalgamates economies. Um, well, I got clearly I got that wrong. <laughs> All of us have got it wrong on February the 24th this year. Our world changed. Yes. And a lot of that optimism has suddenly um Evaporated, And I think that this is um, what John Pfeffer is saying, that those of us who were really very optimistic about the future of humankind are being challenged now by the risk of famine, the risk of energy, very cold winters, et cetera, and also the fact that this political formula that we thought was so key, this notion of capitalism, free market, democracy, et cetera, That may not be the case, because when you look around the world today, it's actually authoritarian leaders that are doing very well, and Putin is clearly the best example of that. So he is someone who is a nationalist. For a while, Russia did flirt with the West, including, of course, having the world's largest McDonald's outlet. Uh, That was in Moscow. But he gave up on that, and he's reverted to type to being this very dictatorial leader. There There is no democracy in Russia. There's no free media in Russia. And all of this talk of somehow the end of of history has proved to be wrong. We're really back. We're back to history, and we're back to um, brutal rulers. And so that that's been another big change. And John Pfeffer points that out. Those of us who are optimists have been proved wrong, as on February twenty fourth this year.
0: The NATO summit happened recently, and in the lead up. Uh the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was very vocal about how the world has to keep up the fight against Russia and against Vladimir Putin. Is that something that we're seeing? He's worried that maybe the world's going to have to go, OK, we're going to have to let Russia just be more assertive in the world at the moment, rather than keeping up the fight in trying to, you know, end his invasion of Ukraine?
1: That it's a clear uh, fear of President Zelensky, the leader in Ukraine, His worry is that Ukraine will just slide off the um, international agenda. Russia will hold on to its gains in the eastern part of the country and also around the south, which gives uh, Russia control over all of the Ukrainian ports. And so Zelensky's fear is that Western countries will say, well, look, we we put up a, a struggle against Russia. We did our best, but it didn't work out. And so we just have to give that territory to Russia. Uh, Will that then embolden Russia to go on to do still more uh, brutality? Will they go on for other countries? Um, We just don't know. And there's also a sense of combat fatigue. And a lot of Americans are saying, look, we've got domestic problems. We really ought to be focusing on solving our domestic issues rather than getting involved in the world. Remember, the the Americans have just been defeated in Afghanistan, a 20-year war, their longest ever war. And they've got very little to show for all their activity in Afghanistan. And I think a lot of Americans are saying, well, George Washington was right. Let's isolate ourselves from the rest of the world and just concentrate on rebuilding America. Come home America is the slogan, uh, rather than uh, getting involved in trying to oppose Russia and whatever. I think the problem for Russia, one has to acknowledge that they have lost a lot of equipment, a lot of their people. Russia has clearly not done well in Ukraine. A lot of us, after February 24, were predicting that the first stage of the operation would go in in Russia's favour, in other words, the actual invasion. But the occupation would be much more difficult, trying to control such a huge land area as Ukraine. Remember, the Russians were never able to Occupy Afghanistan. They could invade it, but they couldn't occupy it. And the Americans found that, of course, later on when they yes. went in yes, to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And yet, Russia, of course, really didn't even invade very well. They got the eastern side, they got the south, but a large amount of Ukrainian territory is still free from the Russians. Um, so Putin himself has got to realize that he's got problems at his end as well. The war has revealed a lot of deficiencies for the Russian armed forces, the fact that the Russians have missed out on the revolution in thinking that's taken place in terms of giving more role to the the non-commissioned officers, the NCOs. They do a lot of the actual thinking. You don't need somebody, a general, far away from the battlefield. You need people locally. So that's the role of sergeants and corporals who play this key role. Uh, The Russians have not caught up with that. Uh, whereas Australia, the United States, UK certainly have. So Russia, okay, Russia ends up occupying eastern Ukraine and the southern part around the, the ports. Whether it'll be able to go any further, we just don't know. We end up with what's called a frozen conflict. And so Russia has had its attack blunted, but as long as Putin remains in office, he can't afford to back down. So he's got to continue the struggle.
0: To wrap us up, Keith, John Pfeffer in this article talked about how China could actually play a role in deciding how this conflict ends, in that it's been playing both sides. It's been playing the West, it's been playing Russia. What's, what's your take on that?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's fascinating. This is um, <coughs> Pfeffer, is, as, as you say, has said that China has been playing both sides. China is not happy with Putin with the unpredictable moves. Uh, including the invasion, right? The invasion has, has caused no end of problems for China's economy. So remember, China is basically a nation of traders, as were the British when they were building up their empire. So China's domestically has got problems with COVID and now it's got a troubled international economy and as we're looking at famine, energy prices, inflation. So China is not at all happy with Putin. It's also... I've been, I think, um, amazed at the sanctions that have gone on. See, if we go back to the old Soviet Union, the way it used to run, it was an autarkic economy, which meant that everything was controlled within that one country. And this enabled the Soviet Union, for example, to not waste money on advertising. There was only one tube of toothpaste.
0: Yeah, that's all you get. You didn't have all
1: the rivalry we've got here. Or with Coca-Cola. Um, the bulk of the cost of Coca Cola is not in the in the drink itself; it's in the advertising right. and the marketing. Mm-hmm. So, in the Soviet Union, if you don't waste money on advertising, you've got enough money to put a, a person into outer space or whatever. So that was the that was the the Soviet economic model. The Chinese, by contrast, in their economic reforms since 1979, have embraced the international market, have traded extensively. They are much more vulnerable to international sanctions than even present-day Russia have been. And so they must be very troubled about what would happen if suddenly the big companies that are currently in China said, all right, we're out of here, in the same way they've done it in Russia. So it's a very worrying situation for China as well. So China is clearly getting ready to challenge the United States, but it's not not there yet. So this has all come a bit prematurely for them. They're not very happy about Putin's behaviour. Um, so they, they, as I say, they're playing both sides of the street. And, of course, as Pfeffer has argued, the irony is that, in fact, China and America could actually be brought together in, to create a global green new deal. Uh, so there is scope if they were willing to work together Otherwise, we're going to end up with a conflict.
0: Yeah, and the idea of that just quickly is that, the U- you know, if the US and China teamed up, Russia would have no choice but to kind of pull out.
1: That's right, yeah, because yeah, Russia would be left isolated.
0: Well, so far this war hasn't really gone any way we thought it would, so I guess all we can do is wait and see what happens.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thanks, Keith. Listener.